Hello and welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by Global Investment Strategist Victor Balfour and our co-head of Portfolio Management, Hugo Capelcure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss uh, the last three months of macro market and portfolio activity. A challenging quarter, I'm sort of looking at the pair of them, but not as challenging as for the people of Ukraine. Uh, the firm has been doing what we can to support the humanitarian efforts there. So, Victor, as I said, a challenging quarter, uh, inflation worries and a war, which in turn has led to more inflation worries. And that's obviously impacted both bond and equity markets. So can you just run us through the major developments? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, indeed, it has been a very challenging backdrop this quarter. Both global bond and stock markets fell a little over 4% in the first three months of the year. And in fact, it was the worst quarterly return on record for Treasuries going back nearly half a century. Uh, and on the other side of this, you know, we've seen commodity prices surging. They're up about 20, 25% um, over the same period. As you know, there, there have been a number of developments that are driving these moves. You know, we've seen inflation has continued to move higher. In response, the big Western central banks have finally conceded that you know, accommodative policy is no longer appropriate. Uh, and we've seen revived COVID risks, excuse me, uh, particularly in Asia, with you know, China going through its severest lockdowns yet. And of course, there's this dramatically uncertain geopolitical landscape, uh, including most prominent here is, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has really dominated the wider investment narrative. Now, sadly, there is there is no end in sight to the conflict and the tragic human costs continue uh, to mount. So too, of course, do the economic costs, um, which are likely to push inflation higher, uh, as well as growth lower. And that stagflation effect we've been talking about in recent months does continue to move up that wall of, wall of worry. Mm-hmm. Of course, in stark contrast to the raging conflict, you know, global stock markets have actually proven remarkably resilient since the war broke out. Stocks did fall as the crisis unfolded in, in late February, but they more than recouped those losses uh, into, the end of, into the end of March. And I think it's a, a reminder that capital markets can be remarkably callous and ruthlessly forward-looking. You know, corporate profitability and discount rates are unaltered, then markets can really shrug off all manner of of human woes. Looking ahead, it's clear we, we can't know how or when the conflict will conclude, and we can imagine everything from a negotiated resolution right through to an escalation and, and widening um, of the conflict. For now, we really have to just focus on what are the sort of what is the tangible economic impact of, of this crisis. Certainly, Russia faces a very difficult economic outlook. You know, it's it's uh, the actions of, of the West. I've seen severing as of financial ties. We've seen partial energy embargoes, self-sanctioning from businesses. Uh, it's galvanized a very sharp response. Now, the ripple effects to the global economy from, from Russia's fallout are somewhat muted by you know, Russia's relatively modest non-energy-related trade links. The bigger threat to the sort of global economy comes from the prospect of a negative supply shock, you know, one that pushes energy and commodity prices higher, you know, that could squeeze real incomes and, of course, precipitate um, a bigger economic slowdown. As of yet, you know, we see that this risk is, is somewhat mitigated by you know, the relatively strong starting point. You know, the global economy had relatively decent momentum heading into this crisis. And you know, the first glimpse of the kind of post-invasion data, things like the business surveys and the labour market data, suggest that that has continued at least so far. And of course, other, one thing we should also be mindful of is that you know, the commodity story has eased a little bit in recent weeks. 
um, oil prices are back at about $100 a barrel. Uh, and, and inflation adjusted terms, for example, they're probably about half the level they were back in, in 2008 at their peak. This does not, of course, mean that higher prices are any less painful to poorer households, mm-hmm. but it does suggest, at least for the West, this is a more of a, a distributional crisis, not yet a, a macroeconomic one. So I guess sort of wrapping this all together, um, our view for now is that you know, growth is going to take a hit, uh, but it's not about to go uh, into reverse. Cool, but you reserve the right to change your mind. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Hugo, given all of that, which is obviously um, a lot, uh, how have the portfolios fared through this uh, through this first quarter? Yeah, so uh, as usual, these these numbers are for the balanced portfolios and their new core fund equivalents. So sterling portfolios were down around two and a half percent. Dollar and euro portfolios were down uh, two and three and a half percent, respectively. And as is uh, usually the case, the differentials and performance largely relate to currency movements with the dollar strongest out of the three currencies this year and the euro lagging. So, you know, I hope it goes without saying that we're always disappointed when portfolios fall, but it is, you know, it does happen. But they have actually held up pretty well, given what's been happening in broader markets. Can you just sort of talk us through why that is, Hugo? That's right. And it's really a function of the diversifying assets and how they've performed, particularly the various inflation hedges uh, that we've been talking about uh, on these uh, podcasts. So if we look at the two sides of the portfolio, the return assets lagged broader equity markets a bit, but the diversifying assets made a good uh, contribution. And if I take the return assets, essentially the equities and the equity funds first, these were down around 6.5% over the quarter, so some 2% behind the MSCI Global Equity Index um, in local currency terms. And this was largely a function of the continued disappointing performance of some of the funds targeting high growth sectors and geographies. So the Bears Fund, which owns companies like Square and Wayfair in the US, has been having a tough uh, period of performance as these types of companies have have derated. So this fund was down nearly 23% uh, in Q1. And China continues to be a tough place to invest, particularly for Chinese stocks quoted outside of the mainland. So the you know, the US listed uh, ADR stocks and the Hong Kong listed H shares. So this has impacted the Vanda and Ward Ferry funds. These were both down 19% over the quarter. Aside from the fund, some of the stocks which we replace in the higher growth bucket saw declines over the quarter. So this includes the rating agencies, so Moody's and S&P, and cable companies such as Cable One and uh, Charter. And our sense is that these moves are more driven by macro concerns around inflation and the path of interest rates than by any sort of deterioration in company fundamentals. I think it's, it's worth saying as well that they did particularly well in 2021, didn't they? Absolutely. I mean, they've, they've, they've done well for a number of years. And really what we're seeing is having re-rated upwards uh, some of these stocks. Uh, we've just seen the, the valuations uh, come, coming back a bit. And, and there were some bright spots as well. So American Express was up uh, 14.5%, uh, benefiting from confident outlook at their Capital Markets Day. And Deer & Co. is seen as a beneficiary of elevated crop prices. So Deer shares were up uh, 21% in the first three months of the year. And finally, I do have to mention Berkshire Hathaway, which is a long-standing <laughs> holding in portfolios. And 
I think there's sometimes a feeling that Berkshire shares never really go anywhere. Uh, but I think that this is a classic case of the hare and the tortoise. So Berkshire shares were up um, 18% for the quarter and um, are now comfortably ahead of the S&P 500 index over the last uh, decade and, and five years as well. So as I said earlier, the, it was really the diversifying assets that made a key contribution to the performance over the last month. So they added uh, one and a quarter percent at portfolio level. And it was really the inflation sensitive assets more than the protection assets, which made the difference this, this time. This has been a great environment for trend followers. There've been lots of trends. There've right? been plenty. There've been plenty of trends. And for example, they've been short nominal bonds. They've been long commodities uh, and long the better performing currencies such as the dollar and short the weaker ones such as the euro. In that context, the Abbey Focus Fund was up 18%. The CFM Systematic Trends Fund was up 19%, and the equity capped variant of the CFM fund did even better. It was up more than 25%. Um, and the Willowcrest Fund, which is a, which is a recent uh, addition to portfolios, which focuses on long-dated inflation options, that was up 39%. Within the diversifying assets, there were some reasonable contributions from some of the other components as well. So the SABA fund, which is essentially a long short credit fund, was up 9% as credit spreads came under pressure at the same time that equity markets were wobbling. And the Acura fund, which I think of as a disaster protection fund, made good money from its currency options. So Acura was up 15% for the quarter and is, and is certainly up since. The only material fund uh, that was down over this period was the Artemis fund which is really positioned for prolonged market uh, declines, uh, and also the inflation-linked bonds, which fell as real yields rose. So the Artemis Fund was down 7%, and the inflation-linked bonds were down 3.5%. So it's been a good period for diversifiers, and portfolios are certainly in much better shape than they would be if they had a traditional 60-40 um, equity bond uh, composition. Um, I'd like to focus a bit on the trend followers, but also... Hugo, I will come back about the inflation-linked bonds because it's a little bit counterintuitive that they were down. So it'd be good if you could talk people yeah. through that. But just, as I said, focusing on the trend followers for a minute, I mean, we've talked about them a lot in the past. Um, can you just remind people um, what it is that made you think that they would be such interesting investments? Yeah, so we, we've been learning about and investing in the trend followers for over a decade now. And generally, investors talk about trend followers or managed futures or CTAs interchangeably. And the acronym CTA stands for Commodity Trading Advisor. And this is really where all of these funds had their origins. So commodity trading advisors were the traders standing in the trading pits in Chicago, trading agricultural and other commodities. So, you know, wheat and frozen orange juice and, and pork bellies and, and the like. And the actual term CTA dates from 1974, when the Commodities Futures Trading Commission was established and regulated these CTAs running money for outside clients. And it's in the 1970s where we can draw some parallels. So the 70s was a strong period for certain commodities, notably oil and gas. And it was, of course, a period of high inflation. So the strategies themselves have come a long way over the last 50 years. So now trend followers trade futures across all asset classes. So not just commodities, but equities, bonds, interest rates, 
currencies, even a little bit of crypto, I believe. And the strategies have become much more computer driven and systematic as well. So they're driven by quants with natural sciences, PhDs, rather than traders uh, standing on a trading floor. However, the basic principle remains the same. So they're looking to capture trends in these markets. And in other words, they're looking to buy what's rising and sell what's uh, falling. And this is why we think that they are natural inflation hedge, as they will tend to be long the elements that are contributing to inflation, such as oil and other commodities, and they'll be short, i.e. selling, the assets that are the most impacted, which at the moment are primarily bonds, which are experiencing rising yield and so fall, falling prices. So on inflation, I mean, we've talked about it quite a lot. Um, hopefully it's not the 1970s, Victor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly been an area of focus for us from a portfolio management perspective. Um, you know, is the outlook worsening? You know, you kind of turn on the radio every morning and get told it's, you know, the, what appears to be hugely high inflation levels. But we're sort of hearing the word transitory a bit less. So I'd be interested in uh, in your view on that, Victor. I mean, you are sort of right on, on both counts, oh, good. Um, which is somewhat <laughs> discouraging. I mean, I think even before the war broke out, you know, inflationary pressures were still mm. building, uh, even broadening. Um, and now, of course, with that surge in commodities, we saw the first quarter, you know, that inflationary peak, which I think many strategists were hoping was around the turn of the year, that has continued to be delayed. Um, and just to kind of give you some numbers here, you know, as of March, annual inflation is running at a multi-decade. Uh, high in the US, 8.5%, um, 7.5% in Europe, uh, and 7% in the UK, although that will move higher, particularly as that energy cap is, has, has actually finally gone up as of this month. I won't attempt to be spuriously precise about this, um, but at some stage, those year-on-year rates will peak, um, and they will start to decelerate. And of course, you know, given that the commodity story has softened, as I mentioned earlier in recent, in recent weeks, those base effects, base effects will start to, to drag those, those annual rates lower at some stage. Now, you know, given your, your question, I am somewhat reticent to use this word, but there is still a transitory component, dare I say, um, to this story. You know, supply and demand are not yet in healthy equilibrium. Um, as we see it, you know, goods pricing, that will fade as supply begins to respond more broadly and there's bottlenecks ease and there's, there's further evidence of that at the moment. And particularly, you know, the pattern of expenditure shifts back from goods uh, towards services once again. Longer term, I think our view is that we still see some underlying inflation risk persisting, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if expectations about inflation continue to build and wages uh, are bid, bid higher. Now, so far, this has been quite a slow moving development and wage growth on both sides of the Atlantic is still uh, below the rate of inflation. But it is a risk we need to be alive to. Um, our, sort of, our sort of view at the moment is that inflation will likely trend at an above target to two to four percent range um, over the medium term. And are the central banks sufficiently alert to the risk? Yes, I mean they have a very challenging job at the moment. They're sort of having to sort of thread the needle, if you like. There's mm. they've got this delicate balancing act between you know, taming inflation on one hand and of course that the growth uncertainty caused by uh, the war in Ukraine on the other. You know, of course, the last couple of years they've been operating you know, deliberately accommodative. Uh, policy, but of course now inflation well ahead of target. You know, as I said, seven to eight percent, um, well above that two percent target. And most developed economies, you know, perhaps close to full employment. You know, the focus has finally shifted away from you know, easy policy uh, to restoring price stability. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, central, of course, to this, you know, of course, this is the Fed, you know, which hikes is expected in March. Um, it's first increase since 2018. It now sounds even more hawkish than it did before the invasion. Um, it's signaled that it may hike at every remaining meeting um, this year, which could see US interest rates in the to two to two and a half percent range by the end of the year. And there's also you know, talk about pulling on its other lever, um, scaling back the balance sheet, so-called quantitative tightening, um, which is likely to happen rather sooner uh, than markets are anticipating. Also worth mentioning, the Bank of England also hiked for a third consecutive month in March. Uh, policy rates, the base rates back at 0.75%. Uh, it's possible we could see another uh, four to five hikes this year. That, that base rate could be around 2% by the year end. And, and also, uh, perhaps the most dullish enemy of the ECB, they're even starting to sound less hawkish. Now, whether the Fed and, and these other central banks can engineer an economic soft landing, you know, remains ready to be seen. Uh, but I think one thing is clear, and you know, back to Hugo's point about the trend followers, you know, the prospect of tighter policy mm-hmm. in the context of you know, elevated inflation is a, is a difficult environment for bonds. Mm-hmm. And indeed, we've seen those longer dated bond yields have really resumed their pre-crisis upward drift, really driven by you know, higher expected inflation, uh, as well as uh, real yields. And I think this trend may be set to continue. So given that trend, Hugo, um, it's a pretty challenging backdrop. We talked about inflation-linked bonds earlier. They're an important part of the portfolio. Um, you've been very clear about your preference for them over conventional bonds. We heard what well, conventional bonds that the US was down the largest it's been in recorded history uh, in the quarter. But you did say that we lost money in inflation-linked bonds in the, in the first quarter. So can you explain to people a little bit about what they are, why you own them, and how they can lose money in a environment of rising inflation because as i said earlier it feels slightly counterintuitive yes so losing money when there's inflation inflation bonds yes it it doesn't it's not that easy to understand and they are an important part of portfolios but they don't win in all environments so perhaps if i briefly compare inflation bonds with nominals so uh, the the conventional bonds which should give a flavor of how how they differ so i'll then explain why we think it makes sense to own them and where they could be very valuable. So the head of our bond debt uh, desk will probably wince because I will simplify things uh, somewhat, but uh, here goes anyway. With an ordinary bond, you receive your annual coupon payment. So if we go back 10 years or more, this may have been 5%, uh, for example, sadly much less these days. And then on the maturity of the bond, you receive back your principal as, as well. An inflation-linked bond is essentially the same, but with the coupon and the principal components both indexed to a measure of inflation, such as the UK RPI or the US CPI. So both of these types of bonds are sensitive to changes in bond yields, and price is the inverse of yields. So if yields rise, then prices will fall. And ultimately, it's the very low starting yields of conventional bonds, such as 10-year government paper, which used to be the mainstay of balanced portfolios when I started managing them 25 years ago, which make us nervous about them now. So if inflation and interest rate expectations rise, then other things being equal, there's a risk that bond yields will rise too, and investors will lose money. And this has been the case so far this year. Rising yields, specifically real yields, also impact inflation-linked bonds. Where we think they will do best and really have some unique uh, protective characteristics 
is an environment where inflation is rising, but governments aren't able to push up interest rates, you know, perhaps because they're worried about creating a recession. And it's this potential stagflationary environment where they could show their, their metal. So we aren't that surprised that inflation-linked bonds have lost some ground this year. I mean, yields have been rising, but we still think that they have their place in portfolios, and they've certainly been performing better than other types of bonds. And we do think that the other components within the inflation focus fund could give good uh, protection against a broader range of inflation environments, though. So both the inflation expectations, ETFs, and the recently added inflation-linked options have been performing well. So it's diversification of the diversifiers again. Exactly right. Okay. Let's shift to China. Uh, Hugo, you alluded to the fact that it's been very tough so far this year. Um, It wasn't very good last year either. Um, particularly for the holders of those offshore Chinese shares. Victor, from a macro perspective, what, what, what's the view? So, I mean, it's faced, the country's faced a very difficult mix of economic and geopolitical risks of late. You know, I talked about those renewed lockdowns earlier. We're also seeing you know, further regulatory crackdowns in the tech sector. The real estate, which is still reading from uh, fallout last year, is still under pressure. And of course, there's now concerns over China's alliance uh, with Russia. And of course, you know, last year, China's stocks were one of the worst performing markets globally. This year, they're down about 17% year to date, which is about you know, twice that of the, the wider global index. Um, we saw renewed volatility uh, throughout March in, in particular. Now, there is obviously a lot of bad news, uh, but there are also reasons for remaining constructive. Um, you know, China's support for Russia you know, may not materialize while the threat of, of Western sanctions loom. Um, certainly the hit from the virus and from further regulatory intervention does pose a more material threat to things like growth uh, and investment. But its impact may be muted by you know, Beijing's policy response. The policymakers have already signaled that they're considering you know, further monetary support uh, and target, targeted measures, I guess, for the, for the enfeebled property uh, sector. I think on a longer term view, you know, we still believe that the emerging Asia bloc, which Includes obviously China will remain the most dynamic part of the global economy. Uh, you know, prospective long-term growth rates are still far, far higher than most of the developed world. And given the move we've seen in, in, in stock prices over the last year or so, you know, valuations are pretty low. Um, so I think for us, you know, despite those near-term risks, we still see a strong strategic case for investing um, in the region. Hugo, what does that mean for our portfolios? Well, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a brutal period for investors, particularly for international investors who tend to get their exposure via the, the Chinese offshore markets. So you know, the US listed shares, the ADRs that I mentioned, and the Hong Kong H shares. And this has really come about not due to any particular problems with the companies themselves. I mean, in, in most cases, they're trading perfectly well. Rather, the underperformance has come from what has seemed to be concerted attacks from both the Chinese and US governments and regulators. So certain sectors have been targeted by the Chinese authorities as being socially undesirable, such as the after-school tutoring sector or the gaming sector. Some areas have come under financial scrutiny, notably the real estate sector, where the overexpansion and the subsequent implosion of China Evergrande has sort of left the whole sector in the shadows, and it's a big sector of the Chinese economy. And then finally, the US authorities haven't really helped by threatening to delist uh, New York Stock Exchange quoted Chinese ADRs 
that weren't satisfying listing rules. So all in all, it's been a bit of a perfect storm. And um, what we we did think was interesting was, I mean, as, as Victor just mentioned, it, it looks like the Chinese government does care about their stock markets, uh, even the New York or the Hong Kong listed shares. I mean, to me, it, it looks like somebody blinked. So on the 16th of March, there were a whole raft of much more friendly announcements. So the beautifully named Financial Stability and Development Committee of the State Council, uh, which is quite a, quite a mouthful, said that it would work to stabilise Chinese stock, stock markets and support overseas share listings. Um, I can only imagine that the command came from the top, uh, possibly from Xi Jinping himself. Anyway, the iShares MSCI China ETF, which is a good proxy, rallied 15% that day, which is its largest single daily move back to 2011. And when we look at the holdings in the Vanda or Ward Ferry funds, I mean, they look like great businesses at highly attractive valuations. So, Helen, you, you often ask me where I'm most excited. And I can certainly see lots of value and the prospect for a big bounce back in these areas. But, uh, however, there is a proviso here, uh, which is that the handling of the COVID outbreak by the Chinese government and the draconian lockdowns that we're hearing about in cities such as Shanghai could have both social and economic knock-on effects. So we aren't, we aren't adding to China right, right now. So we're not adding to China. What changes have been made over the quarter? And um, what are the sort of major themes that are driving those changes? Well, well in terms of themes, uh, what has been preoccupying us as portfolio managers has been risk control uh, and, of course, inflation, uh, which we've been talking a lot about and thinking a lot about as well. So from a risk control perspective, we always have various levers that we can pull to keep the portfolio risk at appropriate levels. So for example, we can either add insurance such as put options or reduce risk assets such as equities. Depending on market conditions, we will tend to favour one approach or the other. Really, since the pandemic kicked off just over two years ago, volatility which is the principal ingredient for determining the price of our protection has been very elevated. And so we've been reluctant to buy much more insurance through things like put options. Essentially, you just don't get very much bang for your, for your buck here. And so the general course has been to steadily trim these stocks and the equity funds as markets have rallied. And that's what we've been doing so far this year. So we've reduced equities and tranches. So in January, we sold some uh, American Express and some Moody's and some S&P Global. Then in February, we sold some more American Express some Berkshire Hathaway, Deer and Wells Fargo. At the same time, we used part of those proceeds to top up the Eurofin's position, which had been quite uh, weak. And we added a new position in a NASDAQ 100 equally weighted uh, ETF. Then most recently in March, we sold more deer, being very strong, as I mentioned, on the on the strength of agricultural commodities and Wells Fargo. And we also trimmed, uh, trimmed some uh, Lloyds Bank. And aside from taking some money out of the equities, we've also added to the inflation focus fund. So adding to the inflation bonds uh, and also the two inflation expectations uh, et uh, ETFs. Hugo, it's extremely unusual for, for you all to buy uh, ETFs or any form of passive vehicle. 
Yeah, yes, this is a bit of a departure for us, and we haven't become passive investors. We still believe in, in, in active management, but we've never ruled out investing in passive vehicles, and we do use them from time to time, especially when we want to gain to, to rapidly gain exposure to a certain market or a sector. On the diversifying side of the portfolio, so I mentioned the inflation's expectations vehicles, and these are ETFs. They're very a convenient way. And cheap. And cheap of, of expressing those particular positions. The reason we, we've chosen this particular NASDAQ ETFs so are really uh, really as follows. So we, i.e. the portfolio managers and the equity research team, we've been looking at a number of these mid-ranking NASDAQ tech or growth stocks for a couple of years now. And in most cases, the businesses look very interesting, but the valuations mm. have been pretty stretched. What, what's happened over the last six months is that these valuations have come rattling back. And you don't see it so much when you look at the market cap weighted version of the NASDAQ, i.e. the standard version, because the very biggest stocks such as Alphabet or Microsoft have held up pretty well and they're big weightings in the index. However, a lot of the middle ranking stocks are more than halved in, in value. And this is, what's caught, this is what has caught our, our eye. So really, the ETF, the equally weighted NASDAQ ETF, as we see it, is a collection of high growth, high return businesses, generally with net cash on their balance sheets. And they're now trading at a more reasonable multiple than a few months ago. So that's, so that's why we've dipped a turn in the water and bought a 2% holding. Right, really clear. Um, so when we think about all those transactions, you look at the overall shape of the portfolios. How has that affected them? So post all these transactions, this leaves us with circa 63% in return assets, so equities and equity funds for a balanced portfolio, which is down around 5% from where we were a year, a, a year ago. And there have been some more significant changes on the diversifying asset side as we focus more on finding ways to protect against the risk of inflation, really. And when we think about the diversifying side, what levels of equity market protection do we actually have in portfolios today? I mean, I know you've been saying that protection is very expensive, volatility is so high, you know, there are other other levers that you can pull, but how, what do we actually have in terms of protection there? So the protection, the the the, the level of the the put options has been coming down and it's it's been a major challenge for us. So finding protection against significant equity market declines remains a challenge as volatility mm -hmm. remains high uh, versus where we were uh, before the pandemic. So we have less exposure to put options, essentially, as they're more expensive today than they were a couple of years ago. And in broad terms, a pound buys roughly half the protection than it did uh, before the pandemic. However, at the same time, equity weightings, as I've just said, have, have come down. And our estimate of the relative risk of the equity holdings against the broader market, which is the so-called beta, has been declining in, in, in recent months. And that's partly due to changes in what's held in portfolios, the equities themselves. But it's also from an increase in the, in the volatility and riskiness of stocks that aren't owned in the portfolio, particularly in the, in the tech arena. So when we put this all together, um, a 30% equity market fall has always been our central drawdown uh, scenario and, and is actually something very similar to what we experienced peak mm, to, to, to yep. exactly right. 
in this uh, scenario, we estimate a sterling balance portfolio would decline somewhere between 15 to 20%. And I do mm -hmm. emphasize the word estimate. Yeah. Um, and this is slightly more than we were estimating in January 2020, i.e. just before the pandemic, but it's certainly in the same ballpark. Crystal ball time, Victor. Um, from a sort of top-down perspective, looking ahead, what, what's of you? Um, so I think at this stage, it feels as though the conflict could continue for a while yet. And though you know, FT markets have been resilient through this crisis, sentiment is, is clearly still quite fragile. Uh, certainly in the background, we know we have central bank action becoming more prominent in recent weeks. And you know, for us, the risk reward is perhaps more evenly balanced today than it has was at the start of the year. However, I should say that you know, we don't yet think the conflict or interest rate risk is yet likely to derail ongoing growth. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this, the economy seems to retain some momentum even after the crisis uh, unfolded. I think in a, in a sort of broader context, you know, corporate earnings are still growing pretty respectively. They're tracking around 8% for the calendar year and they haven't yet moved lower. And stock valuations, you know, whilst on the high side, they're not, not prohibitively so. And I think our view is that you know, stocks fundamentally assuming that growth story doesn't go into reverse, are still the most likely asset class to, to clear that higher long-term uh, inflation hurdle. None of this, of course, changes our, our current thinking on bonds, which remain under threat from the strategic headwinds of, of higher inflation and, of course, higher uh, policy rates. So thank you, Victor. Um, Hugo, I know you tried very hard earlier to head off my favourite question. Uh, by saying that Chinese shares were now uh, representing great value and you were sort of in danger of sounding excited about it. Uh, but obviously we're not adding to them right now, uh, given the sort of macro picture. Um, what else is getting you excited? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't think you'll be uh, surprised to hear me say that I like the equities held in the portfolio. And, and I certainly agree with Victor that stocks still look more appealing than conventional bonds. Mm -hmm. Operationally, the companies continue to perform very well. And in some cases, the pandemic has really transformed their businesses. So, for example, testing company Eurofins is, you know, is an obvious example of this. But uh, I mean, if you're an airline such, uh, such as Ryanair, well, you simply don't have as much competition as you did two, two years ago. And as I said earlier, some of the more highly rated stocks, such as the tech stocks, have now been finally uh, coming onto our radar screens as well, and they're looking um, more sensibly valued. So I think there's plenty to get excited about from the return assets. Uh, and I, I also continue to think that they're great opportunities for our diversifiers. And it's, I mean, it, it's odd to have a scenario where I like both sides of the portfolio, but that's where we are at the moment. We seem to be in an adjustment period with inflation and most likely interest rates moving to new levels. And this is giving rise to trends. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more strong performance from the from the trend followers. Um, and the other diversifying funds look well placed to me as well. So I, I think there's plenty to be excited about at the moment. Good, well, thank you to both of you. Thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We do always try and touch on the topics which we think you'll be concerned or interested in you know, please do keep sending your questions through to your client advisors because we will do our best to answer them. And, uh, and the client advisors will be very happy to uh, discuss anything that we talk about in further detail with you. Uh, remember that the podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you wish to receive them as soon as they're released, 
or listen to some of our other podcasts, then please subscribe on our channel on either of those platforms. Um, thank you very much again for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.